Welcome to Dave's Psychology Lectures from Algoma University. I'm Dave Broadbeck. The following lecture is from uh, Psychology 4006. Uh, it's a new one for everybody out there. Uh, History of Psychology. Well, Hope you enjoy it. Way, highway, it's what she said to me, it's why I'm gone. So today and Wednesday, um, today we'll get like halfway through this, I think, and we'll probably stop and we'll start talking about the paper. And also, this stuff's important enough. This week we've got, well not this week, this next three classes, we've got two on Voigt and his effect. And then we've got James, so psychology in the States, psychology in Germany, which is really where psychology, when it starts to be called psychology, comes from. Um, there'll be another paper to read for Wednesday. I'll send that out to you right after class. Come up with a question. Um, but, here we go. So, probably 1870s Germany. Got to give you some historical context. So, you probably didn't realize this, but there wasn't a country called Germany until 1871. The country didn't actually exist. Okay? Before then, there was a loose confederation of yeah, 39 German states uh, called the Northern German Confederation, but it was really not a country. It was more like, you can't, there's nothing like this anymore. It's a whole open post Napoleon, Napoleonic Wars. It's uh, the closest thing today might be the European Union, which isn't a country. It's a bunch of countries that do some stuff together, and it's dominated in the middle by one country. Basically, you know, the EU is pretty dominated by Germany today because it's got a big economy and a big population. A little less so by France, but still pretty important there. Here we've got the importance of Prussia as the most important country. Prussia with a P, um, which is where sort of the eastern part, northeastern part of Germany, the biggest part back then, um, and they were the dominant state in this confederation. But these were separate countries. So like Hanover is a different country than Prussia, is a different country than Bavaria, and a bunch of other ones. So in 1870, Prussia and France go to war. Um, it's almost inevitable. You have the two biggest kids on the block, so it's the two most powerful militaries in continental Europe. I mean, Russia, Russia, without the P, had a huge army, but it was also basically so backward that it didn't matter. Right? It's like going to war against Iraq in 1990. One, you know, yeah, you got five million guys, but they don't have any stuff, so it doesn't matter. So we can ignore Russia in this sort of two biggest guys on the block, two biggest guys on the block, on the continent. You got Prussia, France, they go to war. Um, Prussia defeats France, Prussia occupies Paris. And the world sees this, and Prussia fights a modern war. Prussia fights a war that if we saw it today, few would recognize it 
it's not like, um, you know how you see old movies and there's the guys with the muskets and they're all getting up in the air and they're all standing and the French are kind of fighting that way. The Prussians are, they mobilize quickly, they use trains, they use horses pulling carriages. They have a sort of central command system. Communications are amazing. The radio, but they use a, they use a carrier actually to communicate. Uh, and, 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 and riders on horseback. So Prussia just destroys France, like it kicks the crap out of France, and they end up <coughs> the, the, the the French surrender at. And they lose land, and they surrender at Versailles, uh, and that's where the Germans pro proclaim, "We're not any longer just a confederation of little countries anymore. We are the German Empire." So the, the, the Kaiser, the King of Prussia, becomes the Emperor, the Kaiser, Caesar, that's German, of, uh, of Germany. So it was basically technology and planning kicking the crap out of tradition. And the world saw this. You have to understand, up until about 1914, Germany was the dominant economy and like industrial economy of the world, probably. Certainly of Europe of continental Europe. So Germany is a very modern country, even though it's a, it's a brand new country. Most people don't realize this. And their education system was amazing. that the context of this, like you've got a country that's really modern uh, technologically, uh, it's sophisticated, you've got a very educated populace. Um, they can stand with any other country in the world economically and militarily. So it is perhaps the most important country in the world. You've got to understand the states have just come through a civil war, it's rebuilding. You've got the UK that doesn't really want to care about Europe too much anyway, and France just had the shit they got in the war, and Russia literally has just getting out of being a feudal country. There are still serfs still in Russia, and not legally, but they're still working. So German education. One of the important things in German education is something called Wissenschaft, which is pure science. Like I said, maybe the Germans have a name for a word for that. Germany is the Germans a weird language. I've said this before. We think about German. They have words like this, but they don't have a word for glove. <laughs> it's called a hot and shoe. They don't invent a word for glove, but they got a word for pure science that has no need for application. They've got a word for taking pleasure in someone else's misfortune, chatting for it. Right? But they don't have a word. We have a word for you know, tank. You know, like a tank. 
Germany needs to get Germany grab some tanks. We invented a new word for it. In about 1916, they called them tanks. And the reason, by the way, they called tanks is because um, when they were working on them, they needed the name, a code name, and they didn't want stuff to get out, and they said they were water tanks. Because they weren't, they were land ships. Which I will soon be driving at Battlefield 1 in like three weeks, I'm so excited. And World War I, first person shooter. You just walk around really slowly in the mud and get shot. Um, it's going to be great. But the German word for tank is Panzerkampfwagen, which means armored battle car. <laughs> so they have a word for it. They just take words, put them together. But they got this word, Wissenschaft. So, see, look, they're. The fact that there even is a word in German says that, or a term, because this is probably eight words put together, um, it's a very modern idea. The idea of scientists doing science for science's sake and the average person doing it in school is revolutionary. No one's doing this anywhere else, really. So, this is part of the philosophy of education in Germany, the idea that an educated populace makes you a great country. And studying things because you can makes you a great country. In the mid to late 19th century, this permeates the whole German education system. Um, we get a lot of ideas about education today from Germany. Kindergarten, of course, is a German word. Child garden of children. Kinder is kids, garden is garden. And we're gymnasium, which we know is just for a place to play basketball and stuff. Actually, it was what they called high school. Um, and you would go to school, so high school was a lot more like you have all these different classes. Once you get to university, you would study extensively with one person. It's very similar to the model that they had that still exists at Oxford and Cambridge and used to be very common all over the UK, where for one year you take some general classes, and after that you take nothing but your major. And you don't actually have classes, you work in the labs, you meet with a tutor, right? So your tutor is a professor or a lecturer or whatever, and you meet with them once a week, and you write a paper for them every week, and you then discuss the paper they just wrote, that you wrote last week. That's how it works. It's, it's, if you're really bright, that must be amazing when you get education. I don't think it's very easy if you're not very good. But there's no, I didn't do the reading, because it's you and one other person. There's no, I didn't come to class. There's, okay, see ya. Goodbye. And up until very recently, I think they still do. At Oxford, you have to wear a robe when you your tutor. Your tutor wears his or her as well. A friend of mine, Melissa Bateson, uh, went to Oxford. And her father was a, or was a professor of zoology at Cambridge. And he used to argue in the literature all the time with Richard Dawkins. And she got to uh, Oxford, and she was assigned her tutor, and her tutor for zoology was Richard Dawkins, her father's greatest rival. 
And she said, I went to Richard's room, because every professors have these special rooms. And he's sitting there, and he said, there's just a light shining on me. And it's dark everywhere else. And I'm talking for 45 minutes. And then he looks over and says, Melissa, yes, yes. Professor Dalton, there's shoes on top. That was all he said. Which is just, I mean, he's just messing with her. Like, your friends all It's a different kind of education. But you work in labs. You do all that kind of stuff. And this was very common in Germany. Um, one of the things they really valued in German education was academic freedom. Something that is really only comes up in the uh, it comes from Germany basically. It eventually moves to the UK, moves to, the, to North America. Um, but it really used to be the case that professors were hired and fired on the whim of administrators. The notion, and it really comes from Germany, as I said, is that we do research on whatever we want. We, we don't care. Right? We're not going to tell you what to do. We pledge not to tell you what to do. So something that I value very, very deeply um, and I take, kind of take for granted, as a North American, um, is this philosophy back to freedom, is that no one can tell me how to teach, no one can tell me what content, how to cover the content in my classes, and no one can tell me uh, what to do recently. This really is a German idea. So you can see this is going to be a great kind of milieu for some new science, some new literature, some new everything to grow from is, the, is, edu- is, is Germany in the second half of the, of, the, of the 19th century. So the research-based degrees rather than a specific curriculum. So, and this is undergraduate. So you show up, you're interested in something, you start working in someone's lab, and you work there for three, four years, and then you get a degree. I know, like I said, at Oxford, you have two sets of exams. One in December of your first year and one after fourth year. You just don't have any tests. You have nothing. It's all meeting with your tutor and working in labs. Or, or, or writing, let's say you're doing something that equals literature or whatever. I mean, I, I don't know how that kind of stuff works, but it's a different system. And you don't do anything outside your major. See, that's the UK system, not so much in the universities. Then there's the American system, which is also great, which is very general and broad. You know that, for example, you know, if you have 54 credits in psychology, you get a BA in psychology, you know, you need a Harvard 30. The rest is all electives to make you a broad person. What we've done in Canada is we've taken the worst part of both systems and melded them together, like we do with almost everything. Let's take the British stuff and the American stuff, put it together, make it our own, and it'll be shitty. Um, so. So that's some background on Germany in that era. It's, it's an exciting place to live. Um, and it's intellectually really stimulating. 
course, we all know it's not Freud, was not the father of psychology. It's one of the first things you get drilled into your head over and over again in intro psych, I think, is we tell you, no. We tell you it's him. Um, but it's a pretty good run, 1832 to 1920. <coughs> he had an MD uh, in 1855. Right? You see, right? He's a pretty young guy. Uh, and then he becomes an assistant to, Herman, to Helmholtz. And we'll talk a bit about the you know, Helmholtz is a pretty important guy. Um, from 58 to 64. So basically, he's finished his MD, but he's not really practicing. not really practicing medicine for a few years. But then he's like, "Yeah, I want to go do more research." So he goes and works as Humboldt's RA, his research assistant. Um, and Helmholtz, of course, is doing things on stuff like color vision and all this. And this makes Voigt, who doesn't have any training, of course, because no one has any training in psychology, start to think about. Why don't we study internal mental events as scientific? So he writes a book called Principles of Physiological Psychology. Um, comes out uh, in 1870. Writes in 1873, 74. Comes out I think in 74. It's a. It's not a fun book to read. It may be because I only wrote a translation, I don't actually speak German, so if I read German, it'd be great. But I had a feeling it's just really boring. Because it's basically, it's the methods of how to do perception sensation research. It's a research methods book in a lot of respects. There's all a lot of results in it too, but it's all first principles. So nothing is, or very little of it is based on previous work. And it's exceedingly precise. Psychophysics, is, you know, if you take a perception sensation, is really specific stuff. So it's not a fun read. Whereas James, when he comes up with, with, with principles of psychology, not to be confused with, uh, is fun. Like it's, it's really incredibly written. It's beautiful prose, and it's, it's you know, the nice thing about this is he's right about almost everything because it's psychophysics. In, this, in, in the preface, he says, this is a new domain of science. And there's probably a German word for that. So it's probably not even fair to call Flint the father of psychology. Because you got all these other people talking about it too. He's the first person to write a book that says there is a science here we can do. Right? What did Newton say? I just stood on the shoulders of giants. I mean, so did he. He gets to the University of Leipzig in 1875 and he opens the lab. This is, this is probably the biggest reason. The book and the fact that he opens the first lab that is dedicated to doing psych psychological research in 1879. I think it's in March. So, I mean, it's to the point where it's kind of like how we see biology starts in 1858 when Origins comes out. I think we can say pretty clearly that psychology starts in 1879 because that's when a guy opens his first lab. It's called a psychology lab, it's not called a lab 
you know, it's, it's, it's not like a, uh, um, these are the physiology or something like, say, Helmholtz was. He starts a journal in 1881. Which has got a German name that I can never pronounce, so I'm not going to verify. The initials are ZFT. So, he called his system, he didn't call it psychophysics, he called it voluntarism. Now, this is laboratory work with vigorous introspection. It's not introspection, we trash introspection all the time in psychology, don't we? We say, it's not just sitting there and thinking about, oh, I wonder how my thinking works. Oh, like that, great. It's not like that. It's really precise. It's, I feel this, or I have this, how much does this weigh compared to this weight? You know, we talked about that. Uh, is this light weighted than this light? Oh, that is introspection, but it's really precise. Now, the thing is, people don't realize that Wood talked about things like naturalistic observation, archaeological type methods, um, and historical approaches too. He thought of psychology as an integrative thing. He didn't just think psychophysics was the only thing you should do. He looked at causality, so what causes what. Goals and means that, you know, you guys must have, those of you that are or have taken cognition, you probably talked about like a means-ends analysis kind of thing, the way these problems are solved, right? Like, the, how am I going to get to this, this final goal state? He talked about stuff like that. And adaptability, you got to realize that adaptation's in the air. It's the time of Darwin. So adaptation's in the air. The idea of looking at how something, what it accomplishes, so also looking at its function is important. Now, he says it's voluntary because it comes from you, but he doesn't really say this free will. And a lot of people get tripped up because they see the word voluntarism and say, oh, I see that means. That means that you voluntarily do something. Voluntary movements. I'm doing this. It's not what he means. He means it comes from the person. He thought that there could be a very teeny free will, which is, it's very hard for anybody to reject free will. It's harder still when philosophy, since people have been writing things down, has said there's free will. Right? It's a harder still when you uh, are brought up in a religious context that says there's free will. You put all that together, it's hard for you, no matter how smart you are, to perhaps say, to, to go that far. Right? So if self-consciousness doesn't mean, ooh, I hope, I, hope, uh, hope I look okay, it's thinking about yourself. It's thinking about your own thinking. And doing that could have some small measure of free will. That's pretty cool, actually. 
Because he's going, almost going to the point of saying there's no free will. And that's not something people would often say. And he liked the idea, as I said, of adaptation, because evolution's in the air. Smart people have read Origin of Species. The scientific consensus now, we're in the 18, almost the 1880s, no one's arguing against it anymore. Right? Those debates at Oxford are over. Everybody's, the biologists, the new science of biology exists because of Darwin. And it's being brought into every area. So, of course, he cares more about psychological adaptation than he cares about adaptation of the characteristics. So, change to solve a problem. It's a functional approach to psychology. What does this accomplish for the organism? In this case, the organism, of course, is the person. I kind of like his definition of psychology in a lot of respects. It investigates the facts of consciousness. That's good. Except I, I don't know what consciousness is and I can't measure it. So, but it's pretty, you know, that's not that far from a scientific study of behavior and cognition, which is the way that we typically define psychology. That's pretty close, so let's give him some credit. That's not so bad. Um, so the elements of consciousness. What are the elements of consciousness? These elements, these simple sensations, are put together to create your consciousness. So brightness, or color, or loudness, or pitch. So sensation is an element of consciousness, and perception is a combination of the outward world and your inner self, uh, inner sort of sensations, putting those things together. All the stuff you've learned, And an idea, this is, these are very old philosophical ideas. These, in fact, go back to, I talked to you today about Thomas Brown, who's a Scottish uh, philosopher. An idea is a, is a bunch of compl- a, a complex combination of associations and memories and senses and perceptions. And sensations, I'm sorry, and perceptions. That was what we would call an idea. Or what we call it. If I have an idea, I don't call it an idea. It's very clever of me. I am fond. Again, I'm going to the one German. I do two Germans. There's that guy. Well, three. It's the one who talks to the other Schwarzenegger. And then there's just yelling German. Right? Because I watch a lot of movies. Sensation is an element of consciousness! That guy kind of German. Yes, let's play ethnic stereotypes with Dave. Um... So he's got, Wundt's psychology, this new science, basically said, here it is, has two parts. Immediate conscious experience, and that's investigated in the lab, and that's under precise control. That's psychophysics. Right? It's using self-report. Do you see his face or not? Yes or no? Very straightforward self It's still self-report. We're using what he called internal perception, which is just perception. Um, there are higher mental processes that have to be 
Wundset have to be investigated outside the lab. They have to be done with things like naturalistic observations, almost uh, anthropological approaches. Because Wundset's now you can't do that, you can't do that in the lab. Nope. So say social phenomena, things like that, you know, think about the, the Ash Line experiment. Well, he wouldn't see that would probably freak with that. He said, "Who does this in the lab? It's very good." Because if you're looking at conformity, for example, which the Ash Line experiment does, if you asked what could you do conformity experiments, you go, "No, it's crazy. You can't do that. You must tie all the process. You must do it out in the world." I'm going to stop doing these accents shortly, but I enjoy it. So you're going to lose the precise control. Of course, as we know today, that's not the case. You can do social psychology with a lot of precise control. It's not a problem. So you're going to use observations, case studies, etc. People ignore this whole part of women. They care mostly about the stuff in the lab, the precise control, but they don't care about that. About, that. about this, what he called um, Volkspsychology. Like Volkswagen. So it's V-O-L-K-S, a psychology that with an I-E in the instead of a Y. It's German. Uh, it, it means folk psychology, which makes it sound like it's just not good, and then Flint didn't think much of it. And that's not true. He just came up with a name for it. So thinking, language, language culture, social psych, all that stuff, he's like, you can't do that in a lab. And we know today, um, Certainly study of thinking in a lab, right? You've caught cognition, basically. Of course that's a lab thing. Language? Sure, to a point. I mean, a lot of that's more modeling. Culture? Yeah, maybe right there. Right? Culture, the sort of patterns of behavior of whole societies, you can't really study that in a lab. Social psych? There, there's been a whole series of articles in the last couple of months, I guess, like, yeah, maybe here, about the problems of replication in social psychology. It's been a huge outcry. Um, things probably aren't as bad as people think they are. Um, but it's an issue. The basic processes, things like the conformity stuff with the Ash Line experiment, stuff like that, I have no concern with that. I don't think anybody does. That works. But some things are a little harder to study in a lab. Partially because, you know, um, you got people that already all have the same culture typically. It's typically university students. First year university students, as diverse as a, as a class of first year university students are, tend to be people with their money because they can afford to go to school. They tend to be people that uh, are white. They tend to be people that are from the dominant culture of where you're living. That's because that's, there's a reason. You know? Because everybody's trying to perpetually exist in man. But there's a point there. There's a great critique of psychology written, uh, psychology written research written in the 60s called Even the Rats Are White. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. They're not usually white, but if they're black and white, it doesn't matter. It's basically, it couldn't have been as good a title. Even, <coughs> even the rats are hooded rats that have black heads and pink eyes. It wouldn't have been a good title. So inside the Wundt lab, and this we'll talk about this today because it's that wonderful paper about the, 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 the Belgians going to, to the lab. 
So you can see what's going on here. This is obviously going to get posed photo because it's the 1880s. And, you know, exposures took like everybody stands still for the next 45 minutes. <laughs> well, not 45 minutes, but it's going to be everybody stands still for the next couple of minutes. It's amazing they got any focus. But you can see back here, there's a PowerPoint slot. No, that's it. Um, so they're measuring something or other here. You got all these young guys, right? And then you got the old man in the middle, just, spend, just, just putting out the wisdom, right? So he's mostly studying sensation and perception because he says you can't study other stuff outside the lab or inside the lab rather. Sensation and perception is what we can do in the lab, so let's do it there. It's basically psychophysics, which we've talked about previously. Things like mental chronometry, what's that? That's keeping track of time. Very basic psychological process, right? Your ability to keep track of time. How would you do something like that? Well, it's like, okay, tell me when 10 seconds have elapsed from now. Right. Which one of these stimuli, stimuli is, has been on longer? Every 10 seconds, I want you to tap uh, a telegraph key. Why a telegraph key? Because then I can have that hooked up to a pen and I can see exact, and I know how long a roll of paper moving, okay? And I know how long it takes for 10 seconds to actually go. And then I can look at it and say, okay, you're off by this much or this much. We use methods like that today, literally, um, studying timing and non-humans. And humans, people still study some time in humans, but uh, I've done some timing work with chickadees, and that's, we use almost something like that, except it's, it's from a computer, it's not. It's such an old computer, I might as well have data telegraph so I was in graduate school. So this idea of doing a side project was for hell of it. Me and my friend Rob and my friend Ken and I went to Sarah and I said, is it okay if we do this? Rob and I went, she said, it's okay as long as it doesn't interfere with your, your thesis work. I don't care. But she said, I'm not buying you any equipment for it. So we scrounged equipment. It was running on an old Apple II. Which was great. We're soldering bits together to make an interface. It was fun. Reaction time, nice. So things that we would recognize today as fair things to study in psychology, and especially in sensation perception. The thing about Vunt is that for the longest time, the first history of psychology book had this old-time view, the idea of that he was a structuralist. There's the two basic competing um, forces in psychology, maybe even today, but certainly in the early years, were structuralism versus functionalism. Structuralism is the idea that you care about how the, the systems are built. Right? Makes sense. And functionalism is what they accomplish. So the old view, this was, um, is the goal is simply analysis, and we only care about the lab. Nothing else. And it was, in fact, 
thought that his idea of studying this, this full psychology stuff was just like something he did just for the hell of it and on the side. It wasn't interesting to him. And he thought it was stupid. And the newer view is the idea of voluntarism, the idea of an active mind, and perception, which is, the, which is um, we call it cognition today. The Vol Volker psychology, which is hard to say, and the lab is important, but so is other stuff. So is going out there and getting other stuff out in the world. So his idea really was, you're supposed to synthesize things together to get the whole picture. So if we put all this together, we'll understand higher mental processes by understanding the basics and understanding how people interact with others out in the world. So the emergence of new motives and ideas, basically a chain of activities, as I said here, um, it's not just measuring things. There's more to it than that. History. Uh, this work is historiography. Historiography is what historians say is, is, it, is it a historiography course in our history department. It's like their statistics class. It's how historians do history. So it's this. So this is this. this there's a reason that Wundt was viewed this way, and it was believed by Titchener. We'll talk about Titchener later on. Titchener was a student of Wundt. Kitchener kind of got a lot of what Wundt said and, and twisted it to his to Titchener's own ends. My theory has always been, Titchener was a Brit, my theory has always been, he didn't actually speak German, he just pretended. <laughs> so he'd just go, yeah, 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 that's all he could say, and then he paid some guy to write his thesis, and everything was fine. He did his PhD with Wundt. Now, boring, speaking of a boring book, and it's not, it's, 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 there's, the irony is not lost on students of history psychology. The first history psychology textbook was written by a guy named Boring. This book believed Titchener's account. Boring was British, and Titchener was pretty influential. And he said, oh, that's really good. And it went from there. No problem. Nobody cared. Nobody thought anything about all the other stuff. The book psychology, all that stuff. No one cared about it. Boring was like, ah, it was just a dismissive thing he wrote. Didn't nobody care? It was stupid. And it's funny, people started looking back at the source material. Because I remember this when I, when I was taking history psych in 87. Um, we had a book that's now supplanted in a lot of respects the boring book, a book by Hilbert. Um, and he went back and read a lot of the source, original source material. He didn't just take secondhand what Titchener said. And a lot of other historians uh, of psychology have said the same thing. It's like, you know, was a lot more complicated than that. He wasn't just studying perception and sensation. He had other views. He talked about other things. That stuff was really important, and that's what he's famous for, and it's all great, but...
people start getting interested in cognition as well. So this is the, there's two things there. There's the change in how, there's historians actually doing the work properly by looking at the original source material. Then there's also the idea that people are interested in cognitive psychology. Right? The cognitive revolution eventually happens in the 50s, 60s, or 70s, depending on what part of the, what we today call cognitive psychology you're in. People go back and they go back and read the classics and realize that's not just because the principles of physiological psychology is the book he's famous for doesn't mean he didn't say other things. Is that what his influence is most about? Sure. There's no, there's no argument there. But he had these other views and cared about other stuff and thought they were just as important. When you go back and read what he said in others. Stuff? Good Vunt? Because, I mean, it's the place you have to, you know, you know start somewhere. You know, after a few of the lectures. Thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, 
All of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for Dr. Dave Broadbeck's Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>